everyone. My name is Dr. Cindy Burnett. And my name is Dr. Matthew Wurwood. This is the Fueling Creativity in Education podcast. On this show, we'll be talking about creativity topics and how they apply to the field of education. We'll be speaking with scholars, educators, and resident experts about their work, challenges they face, and digging deeper into new and varying perspectives of creativity. All with the goal to help fuel a more rich and informed discussion that provides teachers and parents with knowledge they can use at home or in the classroom. So let's begin. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Fueling Creativity in Education podcast and it is our second throwback in between our seasons. In this throwback episode, we're going to be talking with Dr. Heather Lyon, who is an assistant superintendent and has written about engagement and creativity. So we thought this was a great episode to help you start to think about how to engage your students in meaningful ways. So without further ado, here is our episode with Heather Lyon. Heather, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So let's begin with your first book, Engagement is Not a Unicorn, It's a Narwhal. So how do you define engagement and what are some of the misconceptions around engagement? So engagement at its core is really a formula. So it's how do you feel about the tasks that you're doing plus how do you feel about the reward or consequence that you get for doing the task? So those two factors added together equal engagement. If you really like what you're doing and you like the consequence, positive or negative, that you get for doing it, you will be engaged. If you do not like what you're doing, do you at least like the consequence, positive or negative, or is it motivating to you, positive or negative, to do it? Then you'll be compliant. Compliant, though, is not engaged. Doing something doesn't mean that you enjoy doing it. And there is a level of enjoyment that comes from engagement. So if you don't like what you're doing and you don't like the consequence, uh, positive or negative, you're likely to be um, completely disengaged or non-compliant. So that's how it all pans out. I've got a question that's a little off script, but given that response, I'm curious because, you know, this podcast is is just as much about teacher creativity as it is about student creativity. You've got the fact that you're a learner in, in your bio, and, and I think that we are all learners. And so I'm just curious, in, in your work, have you thought about the variations between that type of engagement with, with a student learner or a young learner versus what we understand about adult learners, particularly teachers in a professional development setting? I really started thinking, even though I've been working with adults for most of my career by far, several years into my administrative career, started working with teachers who were being trained to be coaches to other teachers. And so I was doing explicit work with them on how to work with adults. And I came across uh, the term andragogy, which I was not familiar with prior to that. And so that term, which is like, it makes you sound so smart when you say it. So we all know what pedagogy is. We're familiar with that. And that's really instruction. But technically speaking, pedagogy means instruction of children, that prefix at the front, like a pediatrician, pedagogy. And so it refers to children. Andragogy refers to teaching of adults. I can't remember the name of the gentleman whose work I came across as I was looking for it. I feel like Malcolm might be his first name. 
It's Malcolm Shepard Knowles, K-N-O-W-L-E-S. But he talks about what adult learners need being different than what student learners need. Jim Knight's work uh, talks a lot about that because he does a lot of work on coaching. Jim Knight says, you know, don't be surprised when you uh, present somebody with a solution to a problem that they resist if they weren't a part of creating the solution. Because adults are people who need a sense of immediacy in terms of if I'm learning this now, I want to be able to use it right away. It's not that kids don't want that, but they don't have that expectation in the same way that adults do. And so with regard to engagement, the engagement matrix that I have created and include in both of the books is universal. It doesn't matter what your profession is, what your age is, it's applicable. But the leverage strategies in order to help somebody find the extrinsic consequence that is going to be motivating for them, um, I think that's a different animal when it comes to adults, probably, than when it comes to kids. No, I understand your point, though. I think I think that kids are, I think, somewhat more receptive and open to receiving information, maybe to a certain extent thinking about it's culturally acceptable for me to kind of receive information on the basis that the person who's given me that information probably knows more than I do and that it's going to have value in my life. And and so I'm being challenged to make that connection of what that value is, where I think maybe within within adults and adult learning theory, there's that need to you know, see that value a little bit more clearly up front before there's that willingness to kind of accept this this learning experience per se. Yes, exactly. I love your that word choice of receptive. That's correct. I do want to say, though, you just brought up a really interesting point. I mean, I have a PhD in educational administration. I was deeply trained in terms of leadership, which of course is going to be of adults. And we didn't spend one iota of time talking about andragogy and the potential differences between working with adults and working with children. And yet that really is, I think, a huge piece of the puzzle in terms of where things can tend to be challenging when you're working with adults is that there are different entry points. There are different expectations. um, There are different ways of, of operating and probably not knowing those ways impacts our ability to be successful. So Heather, can you tell us more about this engagement framework that you've written about in both books? We use the term engagement all the time in the field of education. And I was being told to go into classrooms as an administrator and observe teachers and and look for student engagement. And when you go in, oftentimes there's some type of checklist or some type of rubric, but even though you have a rubric that's a scale, when you're not coming up with common definitions or understandings of what this is that you're supposed to be looking for, I can leave a lesson and say, oh, the students were not engaged. But the teacher might say, no, 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 my students were engaged. We're using the same word, but how we're thinking about that might be different. So long story short, I had gone to some training and I write in the Unicorn book that I was actually in a bathroom and there was a poster of uh, Philip Schlechty's uh, Five Levels of Engagement. And anyway, it got me thinking. 
I developed a continuum of four levels of engagement. So from left to right, left being the least engaged and right being the most engaged, you travel through the continuum of non-compliant to compliant, interested to absorbed. So absorbed is the highest level of engagement. And that felt really good. But I was like, well, what causes somebody to shift from one level to another level? It's not enough to be able to name that, oh, you're being uh, non-compliant. What would cause somebody to shift from non-compliance to compliance? So I ended up taking that linear continuum and bending it pole to pole. So now it's a two by two matrix. So um, picture a window pane, if you will. And so in bottom left, you have non-compliant and above that you have compliant. Top right, you have interested and bottom right, you have absorbed. So the point is that along the bottom, you have the task and along the vertical axis, you have your relationship with the person assigning the task or the consequence you get for doing the task, positive or negative. So non-compliant people have low relationship with the task. I don't want to do this. And they also have a low relationship with the person assigning the task and or the consequence they get for doing the task. I don't care about this task. I don't care about you. And I don't care about what I get for doing the task or not. Compliant people don't like the task any more than a non-compliant person does. But what they like is either the person who assigned the task. I wouldn't do this for anyone else, grandma, but I'll do it for you. Or they like the carrot that they get. In other words, I wouldn't do this for free, but you're going to give me 50 bucks. So I'll do it. Doesn't mean I like it, but I'll take out the garbage for 50 bucks. By the way, I'll take out your garbage for $50. Um, (laughs) But there's also the stick portion, right? So I wasn't going to do this, but now you're threatening to call my mom. All right, I'll do it now. And so that's what compliance is. And we often lose sight of the fact that compliance is disengagement. I can't emphasize that strongly enough. Compliance is disengagement. Because when you're compliant, you really don't want to do it. You're doing it because you have to or feel like you have to, not because you want to. Interested, so now we're crossing the threshold. We're making an eastward or a right direction. So we're headed right because we now like the task. So I'm not saying that you necessarily have to change the task in order to get to engagement. But I'm saying if you want engagement, you're likely going to need to change the task in order to do that. And the best way to do that, and this is where creativity comes in, is with choice and voice. So choice is I've given you options and you're selecting from the options that I've given you. Voice is you're telling me the options that you want to have. So I use this analogy. Let's imagine it's uh, Matt's birthday. Happy birthday, Matt. So Matt, you can go to any restaurant you want to. You're going to have voice about where we're going to celebrate your birthday. That's voice. But when we get to that restaurant, they're going to give us choices from the menu. So voice is where do you want to go? Choices, uh, what are the options that are listed? I mean, I'm coming from a a 
college professor perspective, right? But the carrot is great. It's like I constantly challenge myself to to be in a situation where my students are interacting with the assignments on the basis that they they don't care about the grade. They're doing it because they value the outcome. And, you know, we've we've introduced the 4C framework in, into the podcast, this concept of mini C, little C, pro C, and big C. You know, if you're hearing that framework for the first time, we have an earlier podcast from season one on that. And it's by uh, Ron Bigetto and, and James Kaufman. And, you know, that framework, there's the mini C piece of the puzzle. So trying to make that connection between creativity and engagement. But it's really important that the learner identifies new knowledge or makes a new discovery that is of value to them. And I think that we as educators are tasked, and it's a hard task. It's really hard because we're fighting a, fighting a lot of different aspects of the system. But I think what you're sharing is ultimately where we want to be. And I think you've mapped out really well. And so my question is, how much of it is actually in the power of the teacher? Is it all in the instruction or are we battling against a culture that makes it super duper hard? Oh, this is so good because we have not yet really talked about absorption, which is the right bottom quadrant of the matrix. And so absorption means I am so engaged in this task that the motivation, the relationship that I need is with myself, not with somebody else. And so Mihai Csikszentmihalyi talks about that as flow, right? Where you lose yourself and you don't lose yourself in easy things. You actually lose yourself in hard things. We get bored with easy tasks. So we need it to be in our zone of proximal development but at the top of it so that we're stretching in order to get there. And the best example that I have of that, because when I start to talk about that, it sounds so foreign that, that we need an anchor. So let me anchor this in video games. Um, honestly, video games are designed to work in an individual zone of proximal development. And when we play a video game, and I'm not a gamer, but I know that when you play a video game, each level teaches you skills to be uh, successful at that level and minimally successful at the next level. But we play games, video games we play, knowing we will fail. Nobody wants to continue to play a video game where, oh, I passed this level, first try. I passed this level, first try. I passed this level, first try. Think about something like ABC Mouse dot com or whatever that's supposed to be developmentally, you know, uh, scaffolded for young children to learn how to read. You know, no adult wants to play that, but neither does a child who's already a reader. And so uh, absorption is really about I like what I'm doing to the extent that I'm doing it for me, which is what you're talking about, Matt. And I want to say that interested because it is top right means we like the task we're doing and we need a extrinsic consequence, positive or negative, to do it. And for some reason in education, we can't relate. We want our students not to be interested. We think that they should be absorbed, but human beings are not wired to be absorbed in 100% of the things that we do at all times. It's just not who we are. 
And that creates diversity, which is really nice. So you like this and I like that. But when I talk about interest professionally, people can relate because if I were to ask you, let's say you have a Monday through Friday job. On Saturday, what do you want to do? Do you want to do more of the thing that you did Monday through Friday for free? Or do you want to do the thing that you didn't get to do Monday through Friday, even if you have to pay for the thing that you didn't get to do? I know the answer to that question. What I call the quadrant of interest or the manifestations of what that looks like, because in um, in the books, I talk about how there are different manifestations of each of these levels of engagement. So at the interested level, one of the manifestations is professional. In other words, this is the thing that I like enough to get paid to do it. And so I am compensated for it. We compensate students often with grades. And I don't love grades. Like I will talk for hours and maybe write another book about how I think grades are really undermining uh, education. However, what we really need is to focus on feedback because that's what people need in the interested state is good feedback. They don't always need the grade. We use grades as shortcuts for feedback and really it undermines what we're trying to do altogether. So instead of focusing on the learning and interest, we get students focused on grades and then they get compliant with the learning that they need to do in order to achieve the grade that they're going to get. And we lower the bar of what it of the challenge because if grades are averages, that means you always need to be perfect. And if you always need to be perfect, I can't have you operating at the top of your zone of proximal development because there are times when you're going to fail there. And so I need to get it low, low, low. So you're going to get it right. So that way you can get the thing that you need, which is the hundred. The, the zone of proximal development, I think what's so fascinated about that is, you know, we, we had a conversation with Ron Baghetto talking about the fact that learning is sometimes uncomfortable for students, right? And so it, it's getting that balance. We, we don't necessarily want to be in, in a situation where we're, we're creating an assignment where our students feel super duper comfortable because it's not obviously challenging them, right, to the extent that's going to maintain or sustain their engagement, right? And so the way we're going to try and make them get through that is, is to ta- dangle the grades. And, and that was a big takeaway from me in my practice because I, I think about myself and I do think to a certain extent that I have seen uncomfort in my students as, oh, I better go and address that. I better go and make it a more comfortable assignment. And that was a big learning piece that, that I got from that in, interview with Ron Baghetto that I've now started to apply in my practice this semester. The other challenging task, though, that I look at from a teaching perspective, and I'm now connecting it to an episode with Sally Rees, who spoke about like all these different interests, is how does a teacher do this, right? Like you're in the classroom, this is the subject that that you have to teach. And it sounds to me that, that I've got these students potentially at all different levels. And I've got to make that that connection. So how am I doing it if they've got all these different interests? I always ask the question when I'm working with teachers, what was your most creative educational experience? What was interesting to me about your book, Heather, was you asked the question, when did you feel most engaged? And for me, I had a teacher actually at Lewiston Porter in 10th grade, Frank Scalza, who always engaged us in choice and voice. 
And he would give us a book. So he gave us The Catcher in the Rye. And he would say to us, I want you to read this book. And then I want you to come up with a way in which you're going to summarize this book for me and then present it in a way that you want. So I was obsessed with Calvin and Hobbes back then. And so I created my own Calvin and Hobbes cartoons around The Catcher in the Rye and what I learned from that. And because of that experience, I remember every detail about The Catcher in the Rye. Now, if you ask me about any of the other books I read in any other grade levels, I don't remember. But because I had that choice and voice, which is something that really stuck with me in your books, I think those kinds of experiences really help propel us and make the learning stick. Would you agree with that? What are your, what are your thoughts, Heather? Absolutely. I think the biggest challenge for teachers in terms of creating engagement in a classroom or creativity in the classroom is that I think they, that teachers feel like they have to be responsible to invent all of these individual opportunities for students. I don't think that's right. That's not what I'm, I would recommend. Instead, I would say creating playlists or menus for students to choose from. And I always include as the last choice, a voice option. And so in other words, here are all the ideas that I think you might be interested in, but I could have missed one that you might be of interest to you. Propose something to me. That's easier, certainly in some courses than in, in others. For example, in an ELA or an art classroom, I suppose it's easier than it might be in a physics classroom. I get that. So I would say start small. Like, Think of one lesson um, or one unit that you don't personally love yourself in terms of how it's going. Um, what changes could be made that could provide students with greater levels of choice and voice, even if it's just one assignment? I write about the difference between curriculum instruction, assessment, and standards in the book because those are terms that even educators often don't have clarity on. Those are really easy to find to define actually, but standards really are the destination. And the beauty of the standards is that there are multiple ways that you can achieve them. The constraints that we're feeling are constraints that are self-imposed constraints. And when we broaden that for the adults in the room, we uh, then have opportunities to broaden it for the students in the room. And before we move to the next segment, I want to highlight the fact that, Cindy, I think that's like the sixth or seventh guest that, that has proposed starting off small. I think that's a, a really point to highlight. I keep hearing that uh, coming up, Heather, in our conversations, particularly with teachers and um, administrators, start off small. So, Matt, let's go back to your birthday dinner, okay? Let's imagine that we have this beautiful birthday cake that we're serving um, at the end of this birthday dinner. And by the way, this is your favorite cake. It's an ice cream cake, just so we're clear. Great. With the crunchies and all of that, like that's the best part of the ice cream cake. Now let's imagine. So by the way, folks, you should see Matt because he has a big smile on his face thinking about this delicious ice cream cake. Let's imagine, Matt, though, that I told you, you have to eat that cake in one bite, shove it down your throat. Now, do you want the cake? No. Yeah, I'm in an iffy situation right now, yeah. Right. You can offer somebody that they 
something that somebody would love in a manageable way and they will enjoy it. But if you try to cram the whole thing down their throat all at once, they're going to resist, even though they would have enjoyed it if it had been presented differently. And that's really what I think about when I think about Start Small. I also want to start a revolution, maybe an evolution. I think it's a revolution about uh, the difference between being a perfectionist and being a progressionist. And so we need to stop putting the weight of the world on our shoulders to think that we have to get it right the first time. Because when the adults behave that way, kids behave that way. And that's not a good uh, boundary for any of us as human beings. We all start at the finish line. And rather that, and it's a marathon. And rather than being upset that we're still at mile marker one and not at 26.2, Let's just say, woohoo, we're at mile marker one. That means we've left the starting line. We have made some progress and get really excited about that. So Heather, we end every show with three tips you would give to educators to help them bring creativity into the classroom. So what tips would you provide them today? The tips that I'm thinking of are the first would be that teachers are models for students. So students do what they see. And if a teacher is being creative, they're going to have students who are being creative. Teachers who are engaged in their work have students who are engaged in their work. Teachers who are willing to celebrate progress and struggle will have students who recognize that progress and struggle should be celebrated. So that's tip number one. Tip number two is that compliance is not engagement. And so we need to stop being okay with kids who are simply doing what they're told. And you cannot look at students and know that they're engaged because doing what you're told to do just simply means that you're doing what you're told to do, not that you like it or would be willing to do it on your own time. The third takeaway is that creativity is the fuel for engagement. The more the person who is doing the task has the ability to have choice and voice and input and control over what is getting done, the more likely they are to be at least interested, if not absorbed. So that concludes this throwback episode with Dr. Heather Lyon. And before you go, we want to alert you to our upcoming special episode with Dr. Howard Gardner, which is just two weeks away. My name is Dr. Matthew Werwood. And my name is Dr. Cindy Burnett. This episode was produced by Creativity and Education in partnership with WarwoodClassroom.com. 